Well, good morning. My name is Zach, and I'm the associate pastor here at Prairie View Christian Church. And it's my honor and privilege to be preaching to you today and bringing in the new year. And hopefully this is going to be brought down a little bit because I have a tendency to start not yelling, but getting a little noisy. And so this might this might get a little little or to be too much with the mic as hot as it is. But uh, I'd like to point out one thing this morning uh, is that I haven't prepared slides, so it's going to be a blank screen. And that was kind of to force your hand uh, because I think this morning you will be greatly uh, benefited by having a Bible in your lap, whether that's a physical Bible that you might have brought in the door with you. Imagine that. It might be a Bible on your phone. It might be one of the Bibles in a seat underneath you or under one of the seats in front of you. Uh, but, but there won't be slides. We will absolutely be using the Bible, but it won't be up on the screen this morning. And um, I imagine Tom or someone will rib me for being lazy. Uh, have at it, I suppose. Uh, before we go any further this morning, let's pray and ask that God will bless the preaching of his word and that we would be pleasing to him as we're gathered here. Would you bow your heads with me? Dear Heavenly Father, would you help us to be sensitive to your desires this morning? That as we have gathered here, I would rightly handle your word and declare your word and teach your word, and that all of our hearts, mine most of all, would be gripped by the reality of who you are. As we slow down in prayer... And we contemplate who you are and who we are in comparison. I just ask that we'd be humbled in your presence. Humble us, God, and help us in our humility. Let, let your word work on us. As we consider who you are and who we are, help us to trust you, not only because you're great and we aren't, we're weak and fragile, but because you're good and you've proven your love to us by sending Jesus, to save us, and the Holy Spirit to keep us until the resurrection. God, I pray that you would encourage us this morning from your word, that you would show us the things related to life and godliness, that we may live more in step with your desires, with who you are, and bring you more honor and glory among each other as a church, among our families, among our neighbors, and among everyone we come into contact with. I also pray that this morning you would expose ourselves to us with your word, um, that we'd be convicted of our sins, and that you would lead us into repentance, confident that we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And lastly, Father, I ask that you would bless every church this morning, uh, especially those where we have loved ones who are gathered to worship you. Uh, May your word be preached and prayed and sung and lift the hearts and spirits of all those who hear it. And I ask that Same thing for this church this morning as well. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. So one of the, I suppose, dirty little secrets of pastoral ministry is that preaching through books of the Bible is easy. uh, In a way. It's not necessarily easy. There are lots of challenges that come with preaching through a book of the Bible. And that tends to be what we do here. Um, But one way that it is easier is you don't have to come up with interesting topics week in and week out. It is what it is. You preach what God has given you, God's outline is there, and you follow it. So if it is your turn to preach a sermon on Isaac's servant's camels being given water as a story of romantic intrigue, then that's what I'm going to do. And you might remember I 
had to do that. Last year, we preached through the book of Genesis, and I was preaching Isaac, and part of Isaac's story is about camels and water and the love of his life. Um, now, there's a lot of reasons to go through a book of the Bible straight through, and, and the fact that it's easier is way, way, way on the bottom of that list. Um, but it is. It is easier, and, and Ben can attest to this, having just preached a one-off sermon last week, that the freedom can be a little disorienting. It can be a little dizzying. There are literally countless options and directions that you can go in. Uh, so this morning, the direction I've chosen is hopefully a simple one. I just want to encourage you. I want to say, keep up the good work. And if it turns out that you haven't really been working or turns out that your work has been bad, then I, I want to say stop it and get going on the good work. Because chances are, If you have been doing good, you've been given lots of excuses to quit. You've hit walls, and you've faced obstacles, and you've been tempted to give up. But there's encouragement from the gospel for you. And if you haven't really been working, and you think back and you see a whole lot of coasting and floating in your past, then you probably need to take another look at where you're headed. If you're coasting and drifting into sin and death, why aren't you fighting it? And if you're coasting and drifting towards heaven, why aren't you more excited? And if your work has been bad, do you know it's been bad? Are you sure it's been bad? Are you aware that it's been bad? And do you know that left to yourself, you'll one day be judged on the basis of your bad works? See, the gospel speaks to all of this, and it offers us encouragement in all of these things to do good. And so my hope this morning is to apply God's word in a way that encourages you all of us, myself included, to keep on doing good. And what we'll find as we consider Hebrews 11 and then Genesis 25 is that earthly good is accomplished by heavenly-minded people. Heavenly-mindedness helps us persevere in doing good. The hope of heaven is enough to strengthen you to run through walls that might stand in your way. It's enough to quit coasting, and it's enough to turn from sin. I want us to be known as a church that is committed to doing good. And I think I want, and all Christians should want to be known as people committed to doing good. But our commitment to good must be rooted in the hope of heaven that we have in Christ. So let's turn our attention now to Hebrews 11. And what we'll see here is men and women who persevered in doing good because they were captivated by the future promise of heaven. They held on tightly to their visions of the future and let that drive their actions. So let's begin in Hebrews 11, verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is a fairly common verse. You maybe recognize it, maybe you've heard it before. It's not quite as recognizable as John 3.16 or Philippians 4.13, but if you've ever looked for a biblical definition of faith, you were probably directed toward this verse very quickly. Unfortunately, at least in my opinion, the definition isn't exactly clear. At least, like I said, for me, it wasn't clear for a very long time. For context, Hebrews 11 is often referred to as the hall of faith. It's a type of hall of fame of faith, but that's a mouthful, and so it's just easier to say hall of faith and hope people get the reference. But it's a hall of faith, and, it's, and this verse, Hebrews 11.1, 1, serves as an introduction. It's almost like you're walking into this museum, this hall of fame, and right outside is a sign 
that tells you what you're going in to look at. What we're going to see in this hall of fame is people marked by faith. So what is faith? Well, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Does that make sense? Again, if you're like me, it, it probably doesn't. In other words, faith is holding on tightly to a vision of the future and letting it guide your actions. But you're not holding on to a certain vision of the future because it's the one you wish would happen. It's your favorite one or the one you think is best. You're holding on to the vision of the future that you are completely certain will happen. And therefore, because you are completely certain of that future, you will let it drive your actions. These men and women that we're about to read about in Hebrews 11 were not acting towards the futures that they hoped to have, that they crossed their fingers and were wishing for. They were acting towards the one, the future, that they wholeheartedly expected to receive from the hands of a gracious God. So we're going to march through some of these and take a look for ourselves. And this is why it's going to be so helpful to have a Bible in front of you. So first up is Abel in verse 4. Abel is the son of Adam and Eve, the first victim of murder when he was killed by his brother Cain. Recorded in Genesis 4, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. He gave the best of what he had. He believed that God was worthy of his best and that God could provide better than anything he could keep for himself. He saw the generosity of God in his future and held on tightly to that, giving his best to God, knowing that God would not leave him empty-handed. Next is Enoch in verse, chapter, or verse 5. We also read about him in Genesis. Enoch lived between the fall and the flood. It was a period of several hundred years, and it was particularly marked by sin and evil. In fact, the growing sin and evil is what led God to orchestrate the flood in the first place. And it's clear that many had turned their backs on God during this time, but Enoch had faith. He saw the righteous judgment of a holy God in his future and held on tightly to that, walking in righteousness with God. And he was rewarded very well. Next is Noah in verse 7. You're probably very familiar with Noah. He's warned about a flood, a future flood, and is so certain of that future, he goes about building an absolutely massive boat. And the Bible doesn't give us any specific numbers, but I think it's easy to forget how long that would have taken. It's easy to read it in 10 seconds and not realize that this was a project that would have taken years Years and years and years of his life that Noah dedicated to building the ark would have never so much as reigned. Noah heard God's word and he believed it was true. He, was, he believed there would be a flood and in faith built an ark. Next in this hall of faith is Abraham in verse 8. Abraham was commanded by God to leave his home and journey into the wilderness. God promised to Abraham that he would give him a land to call home, and he promised him offspring as countless as the stars. But he didn't tell Abraham where he was going. He just said, leave. Leave, go out now from your home, and I'll show you where you're going eventually. Abraham's vision of the future, right, was a promised land. And and offspring more than he could count. And he trusted God, and he left even though he didn't see how he was going to get there. 
Next, we see Sarah in verse 11. I have to admit, this one is a bit tougher to understand. And and frankly, I'm not sure that I do uh, without maybe walking into some things I'd rather not have to discuss on a stage in front of lots of people just because it's kind of weird. Not like the bad. If you read it and you're paying attention, you might get what I'm saying. But my point is, in this context, Sarah, we can be confident that she acted with faith. Whatever her actions look like, the fact that she winds up here in this hall of faith, we can be confident that her actions were in line with what everyone else did. She said we, she was confident of that future son that had been promised, and whatever that looks like for her to act accordingly, she did. And lastly, before we move on, we're going to jump down several verses to verse 17, where we find Abraham once again. And this time, it's in reference to Isaac, who was the promised son of Sarah. Again, another very common story. God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, to tie him up and throw him on an altar and kill him in obedience to God. Yeah, Isaac was the promised son. He was going to inherit God's blessing. God's promises to Abraham were going to continue through Isaac. He was going to be the one who would have the offspring and continue that line. So how would any of that work if he was dead? Abraham certainly asked that same question. But he had a vision of the future, of Isaac having children and inheriting the land And so he willingly offered up his son. Now, God intervened and didn't allow that to happen. He didn't allow Abraham to follow through. But it still demonstrated Abraham's tremendous faith. He was so confident in the future that God had promised to him that he he believed he would raise Isaac from the dead if necessary to keep his promise. That's faith. Faith is holding tightly to a vision of the future that you are certain will happen and allowing that to shape your present actions. That's what these men and women did. When faced with a challenge, they didn't cross their fingers and hope for the best. They didn't say, oh, shucks, I hope this works out. I really do. There may have been lots that they couldn't see, like Noah ever seeing rain or Abraham seeing the land he was headed to. But their faith wasn't blind because always in front of their eyes was a vision of the future they expected to receive from the hands of a gracious God. I compare this to Genesis 25. So if you turn to Genesis 25 and as we're turning, turning there, uh, we're introduced to Jacob and Esau. And we're going to focus on Esau as a counterexample to the people in the hall of faith. For everything good and everything commendable that these people in Hebrews 11 did, Esau was the opposite. In fact, the book of Hebrews will go on in chapter 12 to use him in that way. So Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, the same Jacob that would go on to have 12 sons and have his name changed to, uh, by God to Israel, whose 12 sons would then become the 12 tribes of Israel, whose God was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was the family that saw, or the family that would eventually give birth to the Messiah thousands of years later, the family we still read about in our Bibles that's still making a difference even now in world history. Esau was the twin brother of that Jacob. And in fact, Esau was the older twin brother, which may seem 
like a trivial fact to us and maybe even a bit unscientific. Is he really older? I don't know. But, but at that point in history, being the older brother, even if only by minutes or hours, was significant. A family's firstborn son had special privileges. They had rights simply by being born first. They would receive a larger inheritance, more land, more animals, more wealth. And given the circumstances, that was a big deal. It wasn't modern America where with a little bit of hard work and a lot of luck, or maybe the other way around, you can go from rags to riches and work your way up from the bottom. There weren't a whole lot of opportunities for upward mobility. So, And second, the firstborn son would receive a more prominent, important role in the family tree. Right? When the father eventually died, the firstborn son would be given authority over the family, and he would hold that authority until his death, at which point he'd pass it on to his own firstborn son, and on and on it goes. Right? So the birthrights are a big deal. And to top it all off, Esau's very special grandfather that we've already talked about, Abraham, and his very special father that we've also talked about, Isaac, made the birthright even more special. Because Esau's inheritance wasn't just land and wealth. Esau's inheritance was the opportunity to continue the family that God had specially chosen to bless and be a blessing. He would inherit a land the Israelites would refer to as the promised land. He would have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, and through his family, the whole world would be blessed. As the firstborn son, this was Esau's right. So why don't we read more about Esau? Why do we read about Jacob? Genesis 25, starting verse 29, tells us. It says, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. To state the obvious, these two boys did not share a healthy relationship. It was a sibling rivalry and then some, marked by parental favoritism that didn't make anything any better. And so you shouldn't try to read this story and make Jacob a hero, because he's not. Jacob isn't the hero. Jacob was and would continue to be every bit as rotten as Esau. And the corruption of both of these boys, Jacob and Esau, are on display here in this exchange of the birthright. And it plays right into their characteristics, right into who we're told they are. Esau is described as a skillful hunter and a man of the field. And Jacob is described as quiet and a man living in tents. So it's possible that, and maybe even very likely, that Esau has come in from the field, returning from a long day of unsuccessful hunting. He's nothing to eat, and he is understandably very tired and very hungry and very thirsty. It probably wasn't unusual for Esau to come home empty-handed and eat food prepared by Jacob. It's hardly asking very much of your brother to eat some food. Given what we know about them both, right, this, again, was probably a fairly normal event. But for whatever particular reason, on this particular day, Jacob was feeling especially cranky, especially difficult, and Esau was feeling 
especially hungry. And when we think about this this fateful exchange, another thing to keep in mind is that there's a very good chance that Jacob and Esau weren't much older than teenagers when this happened. It's easy to imagine Esau and Jacob as big burly men with fully grown beards because that's just how we've only ever seen them on flannel graphs and whatever coloring pages and things we might have seen in Sunday school. Uh, But there are some traditions that say that they were boys. They were maybe no older than 15. And it's almost enough to make you feel sorry for Esau as if he was just naive and and didn't understand what he was giving up. But either way, he was still short-sighted and he still suffered for it. Lastly, it's worth noting that God's plans were not subject to the flakiness of Esau. God wasn't, you know, looking over here at some storm he had going on and then looked back and said, what? Oh, no, Esau, what? why did you do that? Why did you sell your birthright? That, that didn't happen. God had intended to bless Jacob all along. Before Esau and Jacob were even born, God had told their mother, Rebekah, that the older would serve the younger, which is out of step with the cultural norms. But the sovereign God doesn't answer to the cultural norms. And the sovereign God doesn't change his plans when Esau sells his birthright. His plans were his plans all along, and Esau played right into them. So what happened? When a fit of hunger and thirst, Esau traded God's everlasting blessing for bean soup and bread. Unlike the, women, the men and women who line the hall of faith, Esau was not captivated by a vision of his future. He held it loosely, if he held it at all. When the Bible says Esau despised his birthright, we could just as well say he despised his future, because his birthright was his future. For Esau, the potential blessing hadn't hadn't captivated his heart, hadn't convinced him of his future, and his immediate circumstances overwhelmed his ability to see the future and the value of his birthright. So rather than cling to God's promises and wait for God to deliver him, he took matters into his own hands. Esau wasn't looking to his future that was promised to him or to a promised future because he couldn't look past his own aching stomach. His vision of the future was one that he had to make, not one that he'd receive And he lived accordingly. Esau, again, in contrast to all those members of the Hall of Faith, had no hope. He had no great vision of the future that he was looking forward to. What about you? What are you looking forward to? Have you been captivated by some vision of the future? It won't let you go. Are you holding on to some certain expectation and letting it lead you? Or is your vision of the future a little looser, a little less sure, a little less predictable? Do you have a sure and steadfast hope? It's my opinion, and maybe you would disagree with me, but it's my opinion that the saddest thing in all of life is a loss of hope. Like I, I truly believe that hopelessness is a type of death. Because when hope dies, when hope is gone, a vision for anything good dies with it. And with the loss of that, what's, what's the point of living? If there's nothing good, if you are completely without hope, why bother? And so hope is at the heart of humanity, and hope is the message of the gospel. And so if I had to guess, you have hope. 
You have an optimistic vision of the future. You might even have a great big vision of the future. Maybe it looks like putting your time in at work for a few more years so you can enjoy the next 25 on cruise ships and Caribbean islands and never have to feel a temperature under 30 or endure another long, gray, Midwestern winter. Maybe that's the future vision you're working for. Or maybe your vision of the future is getting into a home or establishing the home you already have and settling down to raise a family. Maybe your vision of the future is figuring out what you want to do for a living and plotting your course to and through college and beyond. Maybe your vision of the future is just to keep your family close as everyone grows older and jobs and adventures and new opportunities take them further and further away. All of these things are big and all of these things are noble. But are any of them certain? Are any of them promised to us? No, none of these futures are worthy of our faith because none of them are certain. And to be clear, none of these are bad. These are not bad futures. These are not things to not look forward to. And there are many other good futures, good things that we can look forward to, things that might be in your head, in your heart right now. But they aren't guaranteed. And so they can't truly sustain your hope. The only future in life that is guaranteed is this. Death and judgment. We will all die and we will all stand before God and give an account of what we've done. And if we allow God's word to render the verdict now, it's pretty clear that we will be judged harshly. And that is not a source of hope. But turn with me now back to Hebrews 11, and we're going to look at verse 13. It says, These all died in faith, talking about the people we were just reading about, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The men and women on this honor roll of faith had a heavenly hope. They were heavenly-minded people. They were looking for a homeland, a better country, a heavenly city made by God himself. And this is what allowed them to persevere through years of wandering, years of childlessness, years of building a boat, the agonizing mountain climb to sacrifice a son. They understood that there was something better waiting for them, something worth suffering for. And that same heavenly city is available to us. The same heavenly city can be our inheritance. It can grip our hearts and minds, and we can hold it tight and let it lead us. See, it's in in the heavenly city, God dwells in our midst. And the sun is no more because the glory of God himself is our light. In the heavenly city, sin is defeated. God has dried every tear, and believers from every tribe and tongue, every time, every color, worship the Lamb of God, whose blood has redeemed them, and who alone is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power. In the heavenly city, there is no loneliness. There's no sorrow, no depression, no cancer, no violence, 
no abuses of power, there's no rape, no sexual assault, there's no mental illness. Oppression has ceased, and justice is no more, because the King of kings and Lord of lords rules in perfect righteousness from his throne. That's the image of the heavenly city that the Bible sets before us. How can we be confident in that? How do we have confidence in that future for ourselves? It's God's word and Christ's work. Because death is certain and judgment will follow death. And yes, on your own and on my own, all of us are sinners and deserving of nothing but suffering and punishment. And God would be righteous and holy to do that. But God is a God of mercy and he's not left us on our own. His demands for perfect obedience are, are satisfied by the life of Jesus Christ, who fully God was without sin. And his demands for death as the price for sin were satisfied on the cross of Jesus Christ, who fully man could stand in our place. As stated in the hymn Rock of Ages, if you're familiar with that, the blood of Christ is a double cure. It saves us from God's wrath and it makes us pure. See, our confidence is not in ourselves, but it's in the perfect work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And we can be certain of that future because it's been taken care of by God himself. The blood of the Son of God has purified us. For those who have put their faith in Christ, who have taken hold of the future he has promised and turned from their former lives and their former love of sin, this is what awaits us. Hebrews 13 refers to it as an unshakable kingdom. We can be sure of it, that after our death, we will one day be raised to life, just like Christ, and dwell with him forever in the city where God is our light. Our destiny in the heavenly city is not upon our own doing. For all the talk of good works, for encouraging you into good works, it's not that good works get us to heaven. It's not, look at this thing we're working for, look at this thing, this prize that you have, work, 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 and earn that for yourself. Heaven gets us to the good works. Right? When we've got a vision of heaven in our hearts, and we've been captivated by this love and goodness and, and beauty that we find in heaven, that we have waiting for us in heaven, how could we not start doing those things here and now? If that's this good thing we've got in front of us, this good thing we're waiting for, that we say we're longing for, that we sing about or we pray for or any of those things, what are we waiting for? If you're in the midst of doing good, don't give up. If your work or your good work is causing you to suffer, don't quit. Romans 8.18 tells us that our present sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so if doing good causes you to suffer wrong, Know that every wrong will be put right in the heavenly city. If your goodness is inoffensive and well-received, do it as an ambassador from the heavenly city, displaying the goodness and kindness of Christ the King, so that all might see it and come to faith in him. Give those around you a glimpse of heaven's beauty and a taste of heaven's sweetness through your goodness, through your kindness, through what you do here and now. If you are coasting and you're coasting towards hell, quit taking your eternal fate so lightly. Hell is far too miserable and heaven far too good 
can coast in either direction. If you're coasting on your way to heaven, realize, like I was just saying, that you will be conformed to the image of Christ. The thing that makes heaven heaven is just that, a bunch of Christians who look like Christ, who are being made more and more like God and, in, and who that perfect sanctification is completed. If we are certain of such a great future, and certain that we'll, it will be a place free from sin, and certain that it's part of what makes it so great and so desirable, we should be desiring those things now. Why are you coasting? Why are we coasting to heaven rather than working and straining with all we have to do the good work of a heavenly ambassador, confident that Christ is the one bringing us home? And if you're living in sin, there's a fresh start in Jesus. There's better for you. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. If you're living in sin and you've never considered repenting and turning to Christ, I hope that this offer of heaven, this vision of heaven in front of you, will appeal to you. Not so that you get caught up in the vision of heaven, but that you will see the great giver who gives it to us in the first place. Heavenly mindedness isn't the source of all good. There are plenty of people who do lots of good things in this world who don't think about heaven. They don't think about it at all. But heavenly mindedness will spur you on when you are discouraged. It will strengthen you when you are weak. And heavenly mindedness is the thing that will protect you from trading eternal joy for bean soup. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word that you've given to us. Um, thank you for the way that you work through your word. Uh, God, I pray that as we finish up our worship service here this morning, um, that your spirit would work on us and in us, uh, that we'd be encouraged to do good, that we would be caught up in a vision of the amazing future we have in faith, or by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, God, that it would give us hope when things don't look so great, and that it would keep us grounded when things are amazing, that we'd always bear in mind where we are headed, uh, especially at the beginning of a new year where all kinds of new plans might be made and goals might be set, and, and we're looking forward to the next 12 months and all the things we might get done. Lord, help us keep that in heavenly perspective, that 12 months is a short time compared to eternity, and what happens here is a far cry from the goodness that awaits us in your presence. Thank you for your love and your kindness and um, saving our souls. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.